Welcome, welcome, welcome to an episode of Designer DAO, where we talk about Web3 and design. Butcher last name like I usually do. Um, they they are a designer at Threshold, which is trying to bridge the gap between uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And uh, we're today we're going to talk about Web three and design, and particularly taste. Uh, Sasha, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, hi. So I'm Sasha Tendase. I know it's a very hard to pronounce name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Web3 designer. That's uh, I like to call myself a design researcher mm-hmm. and UX designer. Uh, I've been working in UX since 2012. Uh, but in Web3, I joined in 2018. I joined consensus mm-hmm. and I worked with Alessio there which was um, an Ethereum data analytics platform and mostly my target audience were developers and we were calling them back then like DeFi power users and developer power users um, yeah and Around this, we were also building a lot of tools that were targeting Web3 developers. I even remember now that I was calling them DAP developers, which is very correct. And when I had a talk at East Berlin in 2018, I remember I asked the people in the audience, so are there any DAP developers here? And nobody (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was very funny uh, because I, I believe I was uh, using the bad lingo. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so sh- long story short, I worked mm-hmm. with consensus and then uh, I led UX design at SelfKey, mm-hmm. which was a self-sovereign identity wallet. Uh, and now I've been working for two years now with uh, Threshold Network, who has been formerly known as Keep Network and New Cipher Network. We are the first uh, company, not company, networks that mm-hmm. did a hard merge on Ethereum. Yeah. Yay! How does it feel to be one of the two researchers in Web3? I'm just playing. <laughs> we're, really, we're, we're more. <laughs> uh, just kidding. I mean, I mean, we don't have a culture of research in Web3 um, at the moment. Um, and I guess I'm just curious about, like, how you've approached research as a designer and a researcher. Um, I am also a researcher and a designer. Um, I'm curious about that experience. So um, how do I do approach design and research? So first of all, it's very important for me to find um, an organization Mm -hmm. to work with that understands the research needs. Um, And Let's say even though they, I consider that everyone 
needs research, mm-hmm. but some of them do not know that they need the research. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of education and uh, in some of the organizations that I worked with, I had to do a lot of lobbying for mm-hmm. research, which I didn't find, um, I don't know, let's say annoying mm-hmm. because I'm trying to consider that everyone is innocent and some people may not have ever um, been confronted with research and they might not know what that is and why it's important. So I'm trying to build a lot of education around it and try to lobby and make people understand that super important. And I'm not doing this only uh, inside of the companies that I work with. Mm-hmm. I, I'm doing this uh, also outside of the companies by doing a lot of talks at all of the Web3 conferences. I'm there trying to fight a good fight and educate people (laughs) and let them understand that this is important. And last year at DevConnect, I remember when I was um, doing a talk and explaining that design in Web3 shouldn't be after the solidity contract, like the smart contract has been already written, it should be in parallel developed. And I remember there was a Japanese um, developer and after my talk, he came to me and he said, wow, I didn't know there could be another way. Doing it wrong for so long. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, it, <laughs> so, it was really hard to change anything after that smart contract. Like you can't change the user experience after that development work has been done, and you're kind of basically fighting against the tide at that point. So it needs yeah. to happen earlier in the process. Design in general That's needs to happen early because um, oftentimes in Web three, what I've experienced is that I'm being approached, you know, about a UX problem. But then I have like, you know, a Bible of constraints because of the de- how it was developed. And it's like, well, I can't make this user experience better because, exactly. you know, you, you know, it would be too much, you know, cost to like change the way that it works mechanically. So, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> the thing um, is, there are like the user flows are most of the times dictated by the smart contract interactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're giving the designer, the task to do the experience after the smart contract has been written, this designer will be only able to patch the experience, Mm -hmm. mend it, and bring some um, things around the aesthetics, maybe try to make the experience better with copywriting, but you can't really do a lot. So the core, like the experience at its core, it's already done when the smart contract has been uh, completely written and and not only completely written, but it's been written, audited, everything. (laughs) But repaired, uh, exploits repaired, vulnerabilities addressed, and then you're like a clown. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, I can do it. 
an amazing experience. Thank you very much. You basically you can do you can do a bunch of tool, tool tips and modals, but that's about it. You can't change the actual UX. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, in Web three, tool tips and modals are like in every UX designer's kit, and until we're going to be um, like people will be so accustomed mm-hmm. with all of the flows and all of the interactions. We will need to explain and explain and explain and explain. And I know a lot of people are saying, well, good design doesn't need to be explained. Yeah, but they're talking about, I don't know, chat applications and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which are so easy. However, uh, Designed for Web3, it's just like you need to educate people uh, in the financial side of things. Yeah. You need to educate people in the technical side of things. You need to educate people and make them comfortable with very, very, very complicated and complex mm-hmm. flows. So I feel like some of the um, thoughts that mm-hmm. are very set in stone yeah. about design should be a bit challenged when we're talking about Web3. So well, different. The hardest part of Web3 is that you're dealing with different levels of competency depending on the person's like individual um, interest. And so like even myself, like I've been in Web3 for about two years and but I'm not a liquidity provider and I'm not a trader. And so, although I understand the, the, you know, the methodologies abstractly, like when I'm going through a liquidity providing flow, I may not understand the implications of every, of the actions that I'm doing, um, how, you know, basically based on the task. And so in, in my early days at Sushi, that's what I learned is like, yeah, I was interviewing a bunch of DeFi natives, but depending on the person, they might have a different level of understanding of what they're doing in the UI. And so... It's hard to design for that. Like, how you design for all those different levels of competency? Because, like, in, in a traditional sense, our tools are very are like a mix of B two B and B two C. And in a B two B environment, you, you know, you can pretty much bank on your your users knowing a minimal amount of knowledge um, most of the time. In a B two C environment, you pretty much bank that your user knows nothing. And so, we're like a definitely a blend of those two things, and it's definitely a, a hard challenge. Although I am not a fan of tooltips, I think. I think if you need a tooltip, maybe the UX could be reconsidered a little bit. But that's just me. (laughs) Uh, I'm in favor of just having the information just there instead of hidden, you know. Well, I know what you're saying, but sometimes I need tooltips in order to make sure that (laughs) I have some white space left yeah. on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to add to your um, it, it, what you were talking about the, the different kinds of um, users and the fact that some of them have some knowledge and some other are maybe less knowledgeable the, the somehow funny and ironic part of Web3 is that the moment a user or a designer has learned about one protocol, 
whatever they learn, they cannot apply for the apply on the next protocol yeah. because it's different. <laughs> and the mechanism design it's so different from mm-hmm. one protocol to the other that you can't really make a lot of patterns. So mm-hmm. whenever someone is coming with some sort of I don't know term and they start using it, my next move is that oh, we have something very similar to that and let's adopt the term because there are some people who already have been educated mm-hmm. around it. So let's just make sure we're, we're using the same lingo because uh, it's like so many, so many things. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's I think it's so hard, not only for the designers. Yeah, <laughs> and also the- some developers just have a niche or the want to reinvent the wheel and you as a user user experience professional have to be like when people aren't using our tool in isolation, they're using it in conjecture with other tools. And so if we adopt different languages and different patterns, that's going to make it ultimately harder for them to use our product. And so even my work at duality, I've been, I study like not only cosmos chain, I study Ethereum, I study Oz, you know, like optimism just to make sure that like across different chains that the experience is like recognizable at least um because they're they're going to be using like they're not just they didn't just show up here they they came from somewhere yeah. <laughs> you know um so moving into that uh, I want to talk about taste meaning and let's define it for 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 a second I I believe taste is like basically Similar to like uh, uh, tasting food, like knowing what is quality and what is not quality based on um, like based on the industry, not industry. I I guess how do I base good design? I think I base it on the the titans of industry. Like I think Apple is is a, a someone that we look to a lot in terms of good design. I think in in um, you know in clothing context, we look at designer brands in terms of signaling for good, for good, like fashion design. Uh, and similarly to food, we look at like, you know, refined or like revered chefs in terms of like food. And so when it comes to web three, because um, in the beginning there was like little to no, like it was all devs just patching the stuff together. Like it, there wasn't like a design culture or it still isn't really, it's still developing. And so we, we run into this issue of, having to basically teach our team's taste and what that means. I guess to you, like, what do you, how do you define taste? I know it's a hard thing to, to, to describe. So to be honest, I, I feel like taste is basically, basically the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. It's more like fine delight. I feel like we have, might have a, a, bigger issue than just taste. I think Web3 has an issue of acknowledging different professions Mm -hmm. and understanding that before something looks good, it needs to work. Yeah. And I think that's, that's like a really, really hard problem that I think every web three designer must have encountered. Yeah. I definitely encounter um 
how do I say this <laughs> diplomatically? I, I encounter people simplifying or under uh, under um, estimating my role, and um, for, for and developers assuming that UX is just UI. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're what they're looking for is like Coinbase or Uniswap or like that's how they define their taste, uh, you know, based on like the higher end of Web three and like make it look like that. And I'm like, yeah, I can make it look like that, but I, that doesn't mean that this is going to like work in terms of like user flow and, and, and understanding. Um, and yeah, that, that's what I run into a lot, just like not understanding my role and like not allowing me to like use my level of expertise to improve the product. Um, Yeah, I think, to be honest, I think I'm a very privileged person in my team Uh, and with the organization that I work with because I came to this organization after they have realized they actually need to have someone to think very well the flows and they need to talk to their users. So I stepped in on an amazing background <laughs> and an amazing uh, put together context. Um, however, I as well had to um, work a lot to make my colleagues understand why research is great because yeah, of course, the first time is like the novelty effect and everyone jumps in and they're super excited and everything is great. And then they hear the, the opinions of the users and they're like, oh, my God, I never thought of it. I thought it was amazing, but I didn't think that it could be so difficult for the user. Mm-hmm. Then in time, they start to lose interest. And I believe this is a very like keeping the flame alive mm-hmm. is one of the hard things that I feel like I have encountered. Yes. And the other was, was to, to make sure that my colleagues know what I'm doing there, not only two or three mm-hmm. of them, but all the development team knows what's my role, what's my job, what I do. Mm-hmm. And then make them comfortable whenever they have an issue to talk to me, like, hey, Sasha, Mm -hmm. we are um, encountering this problem with, let's say, staking, and I believe you might be, might have a great idea, or could you help me with this one? Yeah. And it it took me two years, (laughs) and I feel like, yeah, it was like constant work. Uh, But I'm very happy that now, Everyone from the development team, like the Solidity developers, the front-end developers, everyone knows that if they have something that they believe might implicate the user and the flow, they know to come to me and tag me in our Discord threads and whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but it was two years. <laughs> and- <laughs> yeah, it took a while to build that trust. And I think... Another thing that is not talked about enough um, in design is like how you have to be kind of a salesman and like uh, pitch and continue to get buy-in from your team, 
it's unfortunate that it has to be that way, but it really does, especially in Web3, where it's a developer-centric environment, you have to do a lot of that selling. Um, how, how do yeah. you deal with a team that wants to do spaghetti against the wall, ADHD-type product building? Because um, a lot of the rebuttals that I, I hear often is like, oh, we don't need research. We just need to keep pushing out features until we find product market fit. Or... Oh, we don't need to research, you know, we can just like run small, we can do lean startup and just run small experiments and then see what's working and what's not working. Uh, we don't have money for research, you know, I mean, that's, that's usually the typical rebuttals I hear. I mean, um, so sometimes you need to be a cowboy. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I'm like picking my battles. Mm-hmm. If, if someone is just like telling me, that it's not important, like research is not important at all for them, uh, then I will just leave that group. It's definitely mm. not for me. So, I mean, if you're trying to educate them and they're still telling that, then it's not you, it's them. <laughs> so you need to... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, on the other hand, like, if... Sometimes, like, uh, when, when they're say, saying, let's be, like, lean startup and just uh, test uh, often and small, I think that is great. They mm-hmm. are already in a good place that they understand and they need to test. And um, I believe it's better if you have the opportunity to uh, test smaller features or features just instead of waiting up to test the entire end-to-end product. Mm-hmm. I think it's much, much better to have small steps of iteration. Um, but I think sometimes you you need to choose your battles. Mm-hmm. So let's say for a small feature, if there is not enough time, I would sometimes just work with it, maybe do some unmoderated testing mm-hmm. or run internal QA testing. And it's still, okay, it's not the best, but it's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, run the tests afterwards. But then sometimes they're like, we really need to just push it out the door and then we can come back. And if it's not like an MVP, then that's no problem because you only have some features. Mm-hmm. But you always need to measure when people are are saying, we will see what works and what doesn't. Okay, but how are you going to see what works mm-hmm. and what doesn't? We need to have a way, a means of measuring. Yeah. Otherwise, you cannot know what's bad, what is performing, mm-hmm. what doesn't. You cannot compare. You need to have a starting data and compare against it. So I'm I'm okay with um, orgs that are measuring. Maybe they're basing mm-hmm. basing their, their uh, level of understanding for some things only on analytics. But they need analytics. If they don't, yeah. then it's only like, hmm. Let me yeah, exactly. <laughs> think it's okay and then they're like just wetting up their stump and 
push putting it against the wind mm, it's not really yeah, I, think, I think I hear a lot of like lean startup but they don't fully commit to the lean startup like it's like it's like what you said like if you're gonna run small experiments you need a certain amount of time to, to gather a baseline have you defined that baseline before that experiment okay what is our baseline okay and then in like planning okay after this feature release what data are we gonna go back and look at it you know like in having a plan uh, versus just saying we're running small experiments and then like instead of getting high off of the product release and like not doing retros or not like re- like not reflecting on what was done and then just moving on to the next thing you can easily become a feature factory yeah. um and kind of uh yeah. lead to like an incohesive product experience doing that way 100 percent, and then i think you're what you're doing is that you're only gaming design this yeah exactly. and at some point, if you're not addressing that debt, the users will start taxating you because you're ignoring them. Yeah. And then they will in return ignore you as well. I remember I was running um, research and there was an, a participant who told me, well, their documentation looks like um, bollocks. And uh, it's bad. And if they don't care about me and putting together a good documentation, why would I even just care about them? It's just like disrespectful. So I don't want to use this anymore. And I think it's so important for people and for for, um, product teams to hear that. This is like their language. If you don't care, it's just like you're, you're... uh, turning a cold shoulder. Yeah, yeah. if you're ego building, people can feel that eventually, and they, and they'll they'll start to become um, disengaged with your with your brand because you're disengaged with them. It's like it's it's it's, it's like you you it's, it, people don't realize like product building is not like a performance; it's a conversation. Like you know, like exactly. if you're not having that conversation, then like why should they care? about you <laughs> you know yeah. you're not invested you're not invested you know yeah um, and then i i wanted to touch upon something that you've mentioned earlier like products and product teams that are not doing market fit research or just the the type of product that someone woke up in the morning and said, oh, I think this would be a great thing, and then they never tested Mm -hmm. it. And somehow, (laughs) like, the need finds the product. It's it's just like a one-hit wonder type of, uh, I don't know, singer. It will work for some time, but then... It's just like it happened to overlap with a need. But if you're not coming back or like riding that wave and saying, okay, we we found this need or this need found us Mm -hmm. and we were there, let's see how might we improve the product and how might we add to this product Mm -hmm. so it responds to the users, then it will slowly die. (laughs) It's just like if you're not doing that, it's kind of you're you're not evolving it yeah exactly and, and, and bringing yeah, back to my like original hypothesis i mean original point about taste i know we're moving more into ux and and, and taste and ux can be kind of intertwined because basically we us as designers 
we we've been doing this for years, right? And so we have we're 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 not only coming to these organizations um, with zero knowledge. We have an idea. We've we've observed how to step back. We've observed user behavior in different contexts over time, which then builds our taste and builds our instinct for what is good and what is bad UX. In addition to like our education outside of our roles, and so our challenge. When coming to these Web3 organizations, like these developers, these stakeholders, they don't have that experience. They don't have the experience of watching someone use products, various products over time and understanding like, you know, common pitfalls, common things. Like how do we um, as designers like basically share that knowledge? Um, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So- what I've been doing with my team was that we would have monthly um, a sort of um, talks. Mm. So every month I would present them something. And it was, again, educational for everyone, not only for the developers, from for everyone from the team. And I would present them maybe the UX heuristics and why this is, why those are important and how I get to say that something works and something doesn't because mm-hmm. it's not as if I'm a magician. So I don't <laughs> look in the mirror with a magic mirror and I'm saying this mm-hmm. is not working. Everything is based on iterations mm-hmm. and knowledge that was gathered. So uh, there were patterns put together. So it's easier for someone to understand that it's not something that I have come mm-hmm. up with. It's more like, um, it's, it's a yeah, science. It is. Let's call it a science behind it. And I think it's easier. So this is what I was doing. I was doing some sort of design talks and I would be um, educating my colleagues. And not only on, uh, let's say, uh, UX patterns and UX methodologies, but also I would be um, picking up a product, a web mm-hmm. product, and then doing some sort of um, demantling of the product and helping them understand why this works and why this doesn't work with all of the patterns, all of the heuristic support, mm-hmm. uh, and even with my, like, I would test it as the user and tell them just what was my experience, how this mm-hmm. made me feel. I'm always trying to bring up emotions um, so people understand better how the design in itself or how the mm-hmm. mechanics of the product in itself makes the user feel and in web 3 i think most of the users feel afraid and stupid (laughs) i think (laughs) it's like you're constantly feeling afraid the the the, um fear Mm -hmm. of loss it's Big. And it's not only in Web3, it's also in banking and any financial system. And it's super, super um, strong and it's everywhere. And then it, you feel stupid because everything is so complex. And 
uh, there are people like I don't know who will come to a product that is extremely complex. They've never read anything mm-hmm. about it. They don't know anything about it, and then they will feel completely stupid in front of that thing. And it's important to tell that to like to your team. I think another actually listening to you talk. Another thing that is the downside of axing research or not doing research is that you start to miss that emotional piece because you're not testing with users. You're just looking at numbers on the screen. You're just relying on data analytics. So you're not getting that qualitative feedback of watching and seeing and feeling someone use your product. And so your users start to become more and more abstract each day that you don't do that kind of work. Um, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to, to maintain that empathy where you're, where you're only relying on data analytics in terms of feedback. Um, yeah. That's true. That's true. They're, they become deposits, they become PDLs, mm-hmm. they become transactions. And it's very easy to forget that behind the deposit and the transaction, there's mm-hmm. a base and there is someone who has feelings. Uh, and I believe this is why it's super, super helpful to um, feed your colleagues mm-hmm. anecdotes. And verbatim, quote-unquote, things that the users say, or just if they have time, and this is like the ideal, mm-hmm. the ideal scenario for the team to join the interviews. And yeah, I've, I've tried that. Uh, it, it depends on the person. Some people are like more keen to it than others, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's hard. So I, I, I did that at some point. Some of them, like at first... Of course, when it was super novel, uh, some of them were trying to uh, make time to mm-hmm. participate. Um, however, I think, like, probably, I can't actually put the blame on them. I think they have a lot of yeah. workload. And when I'm coming with, I don't know, one, one hour of an interview yeah. out of their hours of code time and dev time it's like extra extra load on them so it's like yeah I can't blame them I wish they could be there but sometimes it's not possible and that's okay a social Um, media approach when it comes to advertising research meaning like how can I make this like just as engaging or interesting as like a social media post on Twitter, like, and like slowly feeding that to my team in some kind of ways has helped. You know what I'm doing? Uh, like I call it a interview. Yeah. So they are, they are not able to, um, to join, but after each interview, I give them like a debrief and take away and I'm trying to add as much, um, quotes from that mm-hmm. u- that user and is i remember i have a colleague who was telling me this is so cool i'm waiting for your next debrief i feel like i'm watching a series yeah. or something <laughs> What's all yeah, the next exactly. <laughs> i mean What's that's a better position now? to be in than like no engagement whatsoever so sure i kind of want to build a research yeah. bot where like uh 
<laughs> where like you basically put in your research into like little t- Twitter type posts and it just feeds it into your Discord like randomly. <laughs> like I wonder if that would work. <laughs> like today, remember we learned this, and like so people can like still engage with it and remember it because I feel like we we forget research a lot too. Um, I, I feel like I'm that Twitter bot you're saying, and every time, I'm like, uh, whenever I'm, I'm encountering a problem that we already mm-hmm. had, or it's similar to something we already had, and like I remember there was mm-hmm. one time I was talking with a user, and then I like just telling them the entire story. So yeah, I'm that bot. Yeah, I want to <laughs> automate it a little bit so I don't feel like the only because especially especially in Web three where like we're often the only designer and we have very few teams it's like we can often be viewed as like that little bird is chirping like users you know like like and i'm like want to put that weight on something else that's not a person well yeah i think there there might be that people (laughs) we're going to be that bird as as user things and user that and Mm -hmm. user 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 uh, but what I feel is that um, whenever I have the the opportunity mm-hmm. to try to involve um, my colleagues on <laughs> experience design, let's say, uh, it's amazing because the moment they have been part mm-hmm. of the process, more prone not only to accept it, but maybe understand what was the the thinking behind it and why is it important mm-hmm. and then they have mm-hmm. a different um, way of seeing it and I I learned like this from the start of this year we started having everything on mm-hmm. GitHub even the mm-hmm. design uh, issues and everything on GitHub and what I've done uh, I it I've experimented with it and I was very curious. So whenever I was putting together a feature or something like whatever task, if it wasn't just like change the copy here, <laughs> it involved more process. I was trying to start every feature or every issue, like the context, mm-hmm. the behavior uh, noted, uh, the problem. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm the solution and why I thought about it with everything, everything, the entire process explained. And at first I thought, oh my God, I'm just like probably wasting time (laughs) because it takes a lot more to write everything instead of just vomiting some (laughs) screenshots and the Figma file. And I realized, because my colleagues told me, they were like, this is great. I understand why you're doing why why you're mm-hmm. doing this, and it's also helpful. Mm-hmm. And it's also helpful for me when I'm implementing it because I understand the entire yeah. flow. So yeah, apparently <laughs> this might be a good way if you are not I don't know pressured by time. Yeah, I've also experimented with yeah. using like video explaining too like bubbles or looms or whatever um because i feel like um a video like a two minute video is like easier to engage with than like you know a block of text depending on your team 
Um, so I, like I've broken that down into text format and I've gotten like mixed results. And so I found, you know, I guess my original point is like, you have to experiment a lot and like learn your team and like learn their learning style and like how they prefer to learn. And that's like a part of like, you know, raising taste or, you know, raising UX maturity. And so I actually, to close this out, I kind of want us to like give some tips for the designers that are listening. Um, How do you deal with bad taste? I guess my, my bullet points are, I think one, like when you're first joining an organization, really learn I would do one-on-ones. I would like learn who they are as people, learn like how, what their experience is. Cause once, like, you know, put your user researcher hat on and, and like kind of um, ingest like, okay, I know Bob is, you know, his background and how he prefers to engage with stuff. Because once you have that information, it'll, it'll make it easier and easier to communicate. Uh, and I think too, like really understanding, like you said, picking your battles, understanding like what is worth like dying on a hill for and what's not. A part of what makes me make the determination is like impact. Like impact meaning, are we changing huge like task flows? Are we changing like pivotal points of the user experience? Like if that's so, then yes, I might you know die on that hill more than like a small like iteration or a small thing that like you know, users probably won't, won't care about. And, you know, sometimes you don't want it to feel like it's you against them. You want to feel like you're building with them. And so if you're challenging every little piece of bad design, you can easily become like, you know, the Debbie Downer and things like that. And I, I think um, thirdly is like, like, a, like what we were saying, selling the research, selling the findings, selling the users and, and like, you know, ingestible content, whether that be a video, whether that be what you're describing, which is like, you know, explaining the problem, the solution, the context, you know, just um, always providing context and providing um, content that is approachable. Because I think the one thing that I learned early in my career is like, I was like a long form writer, because that was just how I got my thoughts out. And like, nobody wanted to read my like essay of findings, <laughs> you know, um, and I had to learn how to, like, repackage my stuff in order for people to understand. Um, and I, yeah, lastly, oh, yeah. like, it's going to take time. Like you said, it takes two, it took you two years to, like, get to that point. I think, I think a year is, is not, a year at least, because people have to trust you. Um, it takes a while to build yeah. that trust, you know. That's true. That's true. So, in to add to that, it's super important not only to sell the findings, but make them part of it. And nobody is reading, so I make sure they are. <laughs> I'm presenting mm-hmm. the findings and the report, and they need to be there on that mm-hmm. call because otherwise, I know they're not going to do it. And um, in order to make sure that even if they're not on the call and they're not going to read the report, you might have like a one-pager of takeaways. Super easy. Bam, bam, bam. This, this, that. Because this and that. And it's super, super helpful. Um, And I would also say that if you want to get buy-in in your team, as a designer, you need to iterate on your process and make sure that your colleagues are um, part of it and you're improving your collaboration with them. So, yeah. 
that I think is super, super and also just knowing when like you said sometimes it's just not a great fit like if you if you tried all the things that we described if you if it feels like you're you're continually fighting your team to consider UX and to consider users and you know you're not really like you've done all you can do um and you've like you know put your empathetic hat on and you're still not seeing it, any empathy or any consideration for your role you know maybe that's time to like move on because i, I will say like st- staying in a, a low maturity organization that refuses to grow up will hurt your career in the long run um and you you'll stagnate your own growth by continuing to like fight that battle you know yeah and it will hurt you because i think as a designer at least i find a lot of joy uh in doing my work and it makes me happy and it's such a big chunk of my life i just uh, spend a lot of time with my work and doing my work and if I'm going to spend a lot of time with the toxic work and the toxic toxic environment and something that in the end instead of giving me joy it will give me stress anxiety and unfulfillment a sense of unfulfillment it's just like in a relationship you need to break out break up and find some other partner because it's just like the way you're choosing your life partner is almost the same with the way you're choosing your work partner you're yeah. spending all of that time and it's in my opinion it's a sign of self yeah, yeah exactly I think uh, I wish I had better developer analogies for the, the situations that we find ourselves in Web three. It's like it's like if I if I told a developer that you can only make this app, you know, with uh, HTML, no JavaScript. You know, it's like that's the thing. Those are the situations that they often put us in of like, you know, designing in a very narrow like way that it like starts to become something else <laughs> you, you don't even recognize yourself you know it's like is this even designed anymore like i don't even know what's happening <laughs> you know? yeah what, what am i doing here <laughs> what's my job am i a pixel pusher yeah, or become a pixel pusher and i don't i don't enjoy doing that um at all um and i think um yeah, I think that constant conversation with design is is needed, and um, I don't know. I can go on a whole rant about this. Maybe it's another episode. But like looking how to knowing how to look at references, um, and like look at competitive analysis, and like basically understand your product in a sea of other products. In that context, is also important. On top of the things we talked about, like user research, you know, understanding heuristics, like things like that. Because um, I'm building a product right now where, like, it's a new product; it doesn't exist, and so I've had to piece together references to understand, like, how this is going to live in the current landscape. And I think, um, like, you know, pitching it to your develop- developer team of like, you know, how you look at other code to like understand how to do something, like we need to look at other, you know, designs and, and that process can lead to like better taste or better user experience, um, maturity over time as well. Um, 
yeah, I think that's, I think we've exhausted this topic. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to say before we, we close out or like things for the audience to, um, to think about? I think um, for any designer who wants to join Web3, I think they should, I would like to tell them that it's not that hard as it seems. Um, but they will need to become very comfortable in asking questions, a lot of questions. They might feel stupid. It's not their fault. That's okay. They will need to learn a lot, be comfortable with learning a lot, and then they will need to be comfortable with unlearning Web2 patterns. And I really hope more designers will join with three because it's like a, a an effervescent space, and we need yeah, them. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Come join, join us, please join our cult. Um, um, yeah, I think um, it's it's definitely a, a challenge, interesting and challenging environment, and I think. Um, being ready for that and understanding that. And also like, you know, our community, designer DAO, like if you are a new designer with me and you're, you're running into stuff and you're, you don't understand stuff, like there's a community here who's, you know, whose experience who can help you through those processes so that you can get advice. And honestly, that's the whole goal of this podcast is that, you know, designers entering Web3 don't feel alone. Cause I definitely felt that way uh, when I first got into the space. And I, I'd love to save someone else the headache. <laughs> of making the same mistakes that I did. Yeah, that's, that's a very good, great mm-hmm. effort and great thing. And I would also like to, to uh, <laughs> add for any Web3 designer or designer who is aspiring to uh, join Web3 is that even though we have complained in this episode, the developers are not our no. enemies and they're basically islands of knowledge and we need to learn how to harness that knowledge because amazing solutions may spark from those brains so I think we, we need to learn how to uh, collaborate better with them and because we're the more empathic um, beings <laughs> from this duo. I think uh, it's somehow our duty to make sure we understand them and then uh, create the environment and the context in such a way that they will uh, start um, becoming more comfortable and open up and be those great colleagues that now I have yes. yeah. give it some time thank you so much for finishing this episode of Design It Out to learn more about us uh, follow us at, on Twitter and our website designer-dow.xyz until next time